0: as you realize just how many times God spiraled into your life and how many times God's will and God's power and God's providence and God's grace, God's forgiveness, His compassion, His mercy, all of that intersected your life over the past year. And you remember how many promises came true this year because of God's faithfulness. And uh, tonight we're going to, uh, to be thinking about this, this uh, theological term that gets thrown around a lot. It's not very popular in society, but it's the word righteousness. And we're going to think about that out of this text that, uh, that Ed just read for us out of Luke chapter 18. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we, we have so much to, to, to say and, 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 and yet even more to hear from, from You and from Your Word. We want to say thank you, Father. We want to, to, to say how grateful we are. We want to we want to say to you, Father, we want, we want to say to you uh, thank you from the bottom of our heart for all of the ways that you have, have, have sustained us this year and all of the ways that you have blessed us and, and the million different reasons that you've given us to be happy and full of joy. And yet we know deep down in our heart, Father, that we there's still so much to hear. So much to hear. So much to listen to and to ponder. And to, to roll over in our mind and in our heart and soul. And so we pray, as we always pray, Father, that through Your power we will have eyes to see and ears to hear. That we will choose to be diligent in our study of Your Word. And that You will bless us in that study with wisdom, Father. We rely on the promises that James tells us about, that those who seek diligently wisdom will be blessed by You with it. And that's what we pray for, Father. Not just knowledge, even though we know that that's basic and foundational, but we pray for a, 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 a practical wisdom of, of living and application of these, these precepts, precepts and concepts and doctrines and, and truths and facts, Father, for all of that to transform our lives in such a way that when we walk out of this place and our lives re-enter into the, the culture and the community around us, that people see without a shadow of a doubt that there is a difference that the Gospel makes. And so this is what we pray for, the eyes that see and the ears that hear, in order that our whole life turn toward You. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 18, the issue that is found within this text is, is verse 9. It is the issue of establishing a moral righteousness. A moral righteousness. Now again, that doesn't really connect with a lot of people because no one really talks about righteousness anymore outside of religious circles. And then it's usually laden with a lot of negative connotations. It's judgmental. It's rigid. It's condescending. When we talk about righteousness. And so people usually take an uninterested stance with righteousness, thinking that it's just not all that important to think about anymore. And they couldn't be more wrong. Could not be more wrong. Throughout the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word has to do, among many things, it has to do with this idea of acceptance. It's the idea of passing scrutiny. Suppose your son's trying to get into one of the best universities in the nation. And one day you get this letter in the mail that says your son or your daughter has passed all of the entrance exams. He's done exceedingly well with all of the interviews with the deans of the colleges. His references are impeccable. You have the money to pay for it. So we have accepted him to enter as a freshman in the fall. You would read that letter and as a parent you would not say, well, that's nice. No, you never forget that letter. You keep that letter. You show all the neighbors. You take it and, and, and you, and you, you take a, uh, make a PDF scanned copy of it and you send it to all of your relatives. There is a deep abiding sense of satisfaction in receiving that kind of letter. It's a happy letter. One of my favorite uh, recent scenes in the movie, you know, we, we, we bash Hollywood a lot and, and they, deserve, you, you know, they deserve so much of the bashing. It's, it's, it's well deserved. But sometimes they get it right. And I think that they get it right. One of, one of my favorite scenes of a recent movie is from a movie called Antoine Fisher. Antoine is, is a young black kid who's born in prison to a drug addict mom. His father is dead. Uh, because he's a ward of the state, he is shipped nearly from birth from place to place, foster home to foster home, until he comes to the home of this woman called Mrs. Tate, who they're supposed to call My Dear. Now, when somebody wants to be called My Dear, usually they're not a very dear person. And rather than a loving, nurturing, and safe place, Mrs. Tate's home is brutal. And it's harsh, and it's abusive, and it's mean, and it's violent. And there is this very poignant scene where Antoine and his foster brothers have kind of hidden themselves away, and they're looking through a Sears catalog, and what they're doing is the camera uh, turns in on them, is they're pointing to different models in the magazine and declaring that that model is their mom, or that model is his mom, and that model is his mom. Living the life of an accepted child in a loving home becomes this wish that blows down the street like a withered October leaf long ago. And now the name of the game for all of these boys is survival. And Antoine survives. Survives. But he doesn't survive without a bunch of baggage. He, he grows up angry. He is a guy that fights. And as a young adult, he joins the Navy. And because of the many fights with his shipmates, he's sent to a counselor, a Commander Williams that's played by Denzel Washington. And the counselor invests in Antoine's well-being. And through their growing relationship as they uh, get uh, a friendship that begins to, to seed and to be nurtured and flourish. This counselor says, Antoine, you need to find, I really believe that you need to find your biological family. And so Antoine takes all of his leave. He gathers all of his leave together. He gets the permission, heads to Cleveland, where after much effort he finds an aunt and an uncle. And after the aunt and the uncle really verify and and they know that this is their nephew, the uncle in turn takes him to see his mother who is strung out on drugs and living in a crack house. And he makes peace with her and he returns to his uncle. They drive home together. He has told his mother now that he has found her that he forgives her, but he's never going to see her again. And as they walk into this house for the second time, the house of his aunt and uncle, they open the door and all of the relatives in the city have shown up. They are met by a crowd of relatives that you can't even count. They're standing up the stairs. They're in every room in the house. And as he goes in, they're introducing themselves to him. The aunt, as they have gone to see his mom, have called all of the relatives and they've shown up. And Antoine wades through the herd of relatives and they're mobbing him and introducing him, themselves to him and, and hugging him and they're, they're telling him how they're related to him. I'm your, your, your second cousin by marriage. I'm, I'm your brother's mother's second cousin. They're all there. And they're hugging him. And they're embracing him. And he's ushered into this large, beautiful dining room. The, the way that it's filled is, is gorgeous. They, they bring him, the crowd parts as he comes to a gigantic dining room where the doors slide open. And it's a beautiful dining room with with a feast, a delectable, luscious feast of all the foods that Antoine Fisher has talked about as being his favorite. And seated around the table are all the old people, the old aunts, the old uncles, the patriarchs, the matriarchs of the family, and there is silence. Everyone is quiet. And the oldest matriarch, in her 90s, seated at the center of the table, she gestures for Antoine to come close. And he walks slowly around that table and she rises up and she touches his face. And in a moment of mammoth emotion that Denzel Washington directs with great touch, she touches his face and says, Welcome. Welcome. And you see it. Antoine Fisher is transformed. Why? It's because he is accepted. Finally accepted. Whatever the criteria, whatever it was, he passed it and is now welcomed with open arms. And it gets us. I sit there and I'm not... I'm I'm an emotional guy, but I don't cry very much. But the tears are just streaming out of my my eyes, down my face. It it gets us because there's something deeper that's going on here. Now we get back to Luke 18 and we say, Righteousness? I don't relate to that. Oh really? Maybe we just take it out of the world of religion and we put it in the discipline of psychology and we call it self-esteem. Or in other cultures, it's the saving of faith or the avoidance of shame. That's the thing. Ken Heiston's getting here in just a couple of weeks. Ken, ask Ken how important the saving of faith is in Japan where he ministers and talks to people about the Gospel. But are we not looking and longing and searching for the same thing? In every culture and every age, there is a hunger for acceptance, a hunger for approval, That the positive verdict will be passed on us after scrutiny. I mean, when you think about it, we're pretty hypocritical about this thing. We might scorn ancient cultures because they wanted glory on the battlefield, but they would scorn us for spending a billion dollars on Botox and liposuction and going to therapy for years on end. The point is that we need something outside of us that says we are okay, that we're accepted, that we're received, that we're acknowledged and that we're approved. Now, a lot of people say that they don't need anyone else's approval, but be careful of that. Because to say that we don't need anybody else's approval, that we don't need anything from anybody, can be a path at best to narcissism. And at worst, becoming a hardened and evil person of the worst sort. The point is that we are all hungry for this kind of approval. We're all hungry For this kind of approval, the problem is that we try to get it in all of the wrong places and when we get it at the wrong places, it's never enough, it never quite satisfies, it never quite sates the appetite. I mean, this is what's happening in the opening chapters of Genesis. We're square in the middle of God's approval. We are naked and unclothed and unashamed in His presence. No inhibitions, no hang ups, no shame, no anxiety, just harmony and perfect friendship with God. And then sin enters the world because we're looking for something somewhere else. And that's when human beings begin to hide. To hide from God and to hide from each other. Which brings us back to Luke chapter 18, where Jesus addresses the issue of righteousness. In Luke chapter 18, with these two figures, a, a, a tax collector and a Pharisee. And in the way that Jesus talks about it, one is the right way, the other is the wrong way. The way of the Pharisee, we're going to call this outside-in approach. And the way of the tax collector, the publican, is the inside-out approach. Let's look at the first one, the outside-in approach. Let me take you back to verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Now, one of the first things that we notice about this man is his understanding of sin. It is external. He has this external understanding of sin. It's completely focused on rules and behavior. It is not looking inside at character, but outside at behavior. Sin is perceived as discreet and individual actions. I do not rob. I do not harm other people. I do not cheat on my wife. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, I thank You, Lord, because I'm becoming more patient and kinder, more loving to people I used to have problems with and living with joy, joy even when times are, are, are going roughly for me. He doesn't say that. His understanding of sin and virtue is completely immersed in these external actions. It's a keeping and the breaking of rules. So not only is it external but it's also there's this, it's, it's separatist in its, its understanding of, of relationships. The Pharisee in verse 11 is separating himself from the tax collector. he says he is not like. The robbers and the evildoers, and not even like this tax collector. He separates himself from this person whom he perceives to be a sinner. And the reason he is able to do that is because, as I said earlier, the Pharisees see sin as this discrete individual act. Therefore, sin is something that is out there rather than inside. Something that's inside of me. Something that's inside of here. Something inner. Something in the heart. And one of the ways I avoid sin is to stay away from the people who do sin. Like this tax collector. And what externalism, the external view of sin, that it's these discrete external, outer actions, and that's what sin is and only is. When I begin to see sin that way, externalism leads to separatism. If you have an externalist view of sin, then you're going to have a separatist view of people, which explains by the way, why the Pharisees were upset that Jesus spent time with sinners. Why are you spending time with people like them instead of people like us? Why are you sitting down and eating, therefore showing some degree, some level, some some connection, a fellowship with people like that rather than eating solely and exclusively with people like us? So not only is it external and separatist, it's also cultural commandments that He gets at. In verse 12, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now again, notice one of the things that's happening here. in verse nine, the Pharisee says that he is better than everyone else, and he looks down on them, I'm so I thank you that I'm not like all of these others, even this, this publican over here. In verse 11, he says that he is not like these other people like this tax collector. How? He does not rob. He does not harm people with evil. He doesn't cheat on his wife. And then in verse 12, he says that he fasts twice a week and gives a tenth of his income. Did you catch what he slipped in there? There's absolutely nothing in the Bible about fasting twice a week. Now you would fast on certain occasions, like the Day of Atonement. There were national feasts from time to time when the the prophets would call people to fast. But there's nothing in the Mosaic Law about fasting twice a week. That's something that came about as a part of the culture, the the, the Jewish culture, uh, during the time of Jesus. Notice again what he says. I don't rob, but they rob, so I'm better. I don't commit adultery, but they commit adultery, so I'm better. I fast twice a week, they don't, so that makes me better. Now, just for the record, in case you're wondering, robbery and adultery are wrong. (laughs) In case you were wondering. But this fasting thing is something altogether different. It was a good thing. It was a great thing, and he chose to do it. He takes something, though, that is popular in culture, and he raises it to the standard of divine will. He doesn't say... That it makes him different. He doesn't say that I'm drawn closer to You, God. What he says is it makes me better. I thank You, God, that I am not like other men. Now here's the thing. If you do not feel completely approved at the center of your being, satisfied with who you are, accepted by God, then there is the danger that you're going to do this also. I mean, so hungry are, are we for this kind of approval, for this kind of acceptance, that we will take something that has nothing to do with the express will of God and make it a marker for superiority. Now, now Paul addresses this same sort of thing at the beginning of Romans, where he writes that moral behavior will get you nowhere. But a good example, a good contemporary example of this is worship style. Today, there are people who are more introspective, more driven by rational thought. They like the old hymns in a high church atmosphere, they like the quiet, they like the, the, the contemplative, meditative. Atmosphere. Then there are other folks who like to sing fast paced praise songs and even raise their hands. And one group looks at the other and feels superior. One group looks at the other and says, You know what? They're dead. There's no life in them. They only sing the old songs. They don't really care about growing. The other group responds, They're superficial. They sing shallow praise songs repeating the same phrase over and over and over again. There is no instruction in the Bible about what kind of music is holy and what kind of music is not. But there are certainly examples of holy words in the Bible to sing to God. And some are deep and some are simple. Is there anything in the Bible about how emotionally expressive you should or should not be? No. Worship is in spirit and truth. Truth and spirit. But we sneak it into the divine level and we make it equal with stealing and adultery. And sometimes we don't even realize it. That's the outside-in approach. Sometimes we say we don't like ourselves. I don't like myself. I need a sense of assurance. So I will live out the externals. Guess what? It does not work. I mean, think about it. Have you ever been around someone who was constantly telling you how great they are? How wonderful they are? How talented they are? Why in the world do they do that? Why do they do that? Because they think they're great? Or because they know they're not, but they want you to think it anyway? And so they build the case. Talent after talent, award after award, greatness built upon greatness, they build the case. And that's how the outside-in thing works. God, You have to accept me because I do all of these good things, because I'm better than all of these other folks. I've lived a good life, a very good life, God, so You have to respect me, You have to accept me. If this Pharisee was so secure in his relationship to God, he would not have had to prove it to God. You know, my wife accepts me unconditionally and lovingly and mercifully and generously and graciously, eagerly, enthusiastically, and I know this for a fact. And so, because I know that to be true without a shadow of a doubt, I don't have to come into the house each night and stand next to Ellen's chair and say, I did not abuse you today. I did not cheat on you today. I even went on a five mile walk six times this week to stay in shape for you, and I put my entire paycheck in the bank. Aren't you glad that I'm not like other husbands? And think about how this Pharisee begins this prayer. He prayed about himself I thank you that I'm not like all other men. When you write a thank you note, don't you usually write about the things the others have done and not yourself? I thank you, God. And that's the last time God is mentioned in the prayer. You see, under the veneer of God-centeredness is really a lot of self-centeredness. And that's why Jesus called them hypocrites. That's why He called the Pharisees hypocrites. He is not a bad man as culture goes. But He is a hypocrite in the kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus will say in another place, Matthew chapter 21, that the prostitutes and the tax collectors get in before the Pharisees. And Jesus says in the end that the good man is not, that the good man is not, not the one justified before God. Which brings us to the second thing, the inside out approach. Now how do you find this righteousness, this acceptance, this approval? In this parable, it is the way of the tax collector according to Jesus. In verse 13, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. The translation is correct. The definite article is there. Be merciful to me, the sinner. The reason the tax collector says this is not because he's the chief of all sinners, as Paul might refer to himself in a letter to Timothy, but he does it because that is what he recognizes when he looks inside of himself. That's what he recognizes when when he looks in the mirror. And there's a lot of emotion being expended in this man's prayer. He's beating his breast. He will not even lift up his face to look to heaven. I mean, this guy is showing us a lot about what it means to to repent. And I think that that's what opens the door to approval. He says, be merciful to me. But when he says that, he does not use the usual Greek word for mercy. In Luke chapter 18, verse 38, There's the normal word for mercy when the blind man sits on the road and begs for his sight to be restored. That's the normal word. But what the tax collector says is have mercy, which is only found here in Luke Acts and only elsewhere in Hebrews chapter 2. He is asking God in mercy to mercifully atone for his sins. Now you know what that's about. In the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was seen, uh, there's this Ark of the Covenant. And inside of the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments, which meant a lot of things. But one of the things that it did mean is that you could not come close to God without recognizing the will of God in those commandments. Now, who could get close to God under the scrutiny of the law? Well, when you got right down to it, no one. And then on top of the Ark was this gold slab that was called a mercy seat. It was the hilasterion from the same word that we find here in Luke chapter 18 for mercy. And on the mercy seat, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the blood of a substitute was, was sprinkled and it was used to put in order the laws, the demands of the law, to satisfy the demands of the law. And it's the same word that we find in a place like Hebrews chapter 2 Verse 17. Where the writer says he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a what? A merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The tax collector is not saying, God, let me off the hook. That doesn't help because he is the sinner. What he needs is what Jesus offers. That he can only get from the Christ. And that is that Jesus in His place becomes the sinner in order to take the sin from men. And this is how, as, as disciples of Jesus, as Christians, this is how we deal with the issue of approval you know that Jesus loves you and that He made atonement for you. And He made such atonement for you in order to love you forever. And you don't have to wait for the end of your life in order to know if you're saved or not. Because He's accepted you now. Jeff is going to lead us in a song. I, I, don't, I don't know where you are in your heart and, and in your mind right now. But maybe you've really been struggling with trying to, uh, to live a life based on the externals. That is, trying to prove yourself to God. I go to church whenever the doors are open. I give when the money is asked for. I even teach class. I don't know what it might be in your list of things that somehow builds the case that God has to respect and accept you. But you know deep down in your heart that you never feel quite sure that He's accepted you or not. Because you just get a glimpse of the inside and you know that even with the veneer of that godliness, there's still the sinner on the inside. Stop doing it. Stop doing it. What it is that Christ does for us is through His substitution, paying our debt, dying for us, taking on our sin so that we can take on His righteousness and His acceptance is to allow us in this life, in this moment, in this day, in this age with these breaths that we take to know without a shadow of a doubt that we're loved and accepted. And because we know that and it gets all the way from our head down into our heart and we think about it and we ponder it and we meditate and we savor it It melts us. And all we want to do is to live a life that is worthy for the love and the acceptance and the blessing that was shown by God through Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago on a hill far away. Stop trying to prove yourself and accept a gift that He offers to you freely. And that is the forgiveness of your sins. And the way that you accept it is the way the tax collector did. It's to repent. It's to say, I recognize in myself the sinner and the need for the merciful atonement of Jesus. And we participate in that through baptism. And we participate in that through confessing that Jesus is Lord. And we get a hold of that every day when God puts His Spirit inside of us to transform us and to give us that, that, that spiritual sanctifying help to become the kind of people that the Bible and, and, and all of the writers in the New Testament talk about the people of the kingdom, the people of the church, the people that make up the body of Christ are to become as they live in communities of darkness around the world. Our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If there's a way that we can minister to you tonight, we're going to ask you to come and to talk to these shepherds as we sing and sing out praise to God. Jeff, let's stand and sing.